I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone. Well, that was a funny little hello. My, my voice cracked a little bit. Well, I know I say it every single week, but uh, there's a lot of brilliant people in this field. So we have another fascinating guest. Her name is Shavise Turner, and Shavise is the co-author of the book, Binge Eating Disorder, The Journey to Recovery and Beyond. The reason I mentioned the title of her book in this introduction is because I realized that throughout the entire interview, I never, I never said the name of the book, and it's phenomenal. In fact, I quote it in this episode. We talk about so many things that are so fascinating. We talk about how Chavis had to deal with her own internalized weight bias. We talk about things that weight became the central thing in her family to focus on, but the reality is there were even bigger things for the family to focus on, but it all centered, centered, excuse me, around Chavis's weight. We talk about things that clients, instead of going to get the eating disorder treatment that they deserve, end up being told to go to weight management programs, completely disregarding an eating disorder. We also talk about the fact that there is a lot of restricting that goes on in binge eating, and that is very dangerous. Regardless of somebody's size, malnutrition, dehydration, over-exercising is very dangerous. So there are so many more things that I'm excited about in this episode, but if I if I say one more, I think I'm just going to give the whole podcast away. So, all right, everyone, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am very, very honored to announce our guest today, Shavise Turner. Shavise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. So glad to have you here. So Shavise is an author. She is an activist. I could go on and on about the list of things that Shavise does. I'm going to turn it to you and just say, Shavise, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and the incredible mission that you're on? Sure, happy to. I am currently the, uh, I'll just put my title out there, um, the Chief Strategy and Policy Officer for the National Eating Disorders Association. And I came to that position through a merger of NIDA and an organization that I founded back in 2008, which was the Binge Eating Disorder 
Association. And um, I, I uh, founded and then managed that organization for 10 years. And it really was, I felt at the time, my life's work. I was very fortunate to be able to enter into it, um, coming from a, a career in both politics and nonprofit management and policy development. And I had an opportunity and, and I took it and, and started the organization um, mostly for, for myself, uh, a bit selfishly, but it was a, a lack of a community for higher weight individuals with eating disorders that prompted the the initiative to, to even think about beta. So, you know, using my skills and, and really wanting to do advocacy around something that was super important to me was the dream. And, and so that's what I, I did. And where I am now is, you know, we've, we've brought the communities together via NIDA um, and I'm grateful to be able to be continuing and really expanding the work and integrating in my passion around, um, you know, anti-racism work and all the other intersections around oppressions that people experience into how, um, you know, various people um, experience eating disorders and how those oppressions may um, really keep treatment at bay for them. You know, what I'm thinking of right now is, and I say this to, to my clients all the time, the, the amount of time and energy and thought process and everything that goes into your eating disorder, can you imagine what you can do with that energy as a recovered person? And that's what you're doing. I also want to say it is not to pressure clients to think that they then have to become an eating disorder specialist or an activist. They have to do what works for them. But whatever it is, is passion that they're just directing in the wrong way. That's just what came up for me as you, as you were talking about it. I think my question then is, through your own experience of oppression, how did you turn it into being an activist? Yeah, and I, I, I definitely want to name the fact that I have a lot of privilege. So, you know, I'm white. I am educated. I, you know, um, have um, plenty of resources around me. I'm straight. I'm cisgendered. You know, I, I, I live socially um, and economically in a place where, you know, I'm, I'm um, not, I don't lack for anything. Um, and all of those things allowed easy entry into the eating disorders world for me. I, I, I want to, there's a caveat here. I just want to mention that I refer to myself and my body size as fat. And I know that can be really startling and off-putting to some people because fat is so loaded um, with negative connotations. Um, but part of what I've learned through my own recovery is, is that it really is just a descriptor. 
and there's nothing wrong with it. And that's how I describe myself. So I refer to myself as fat and I welcome anyone else to refer um, to me in that way, unless you mean it in a way that's oppressive and, and with a, a connotation that is, is nasty, then, then please um, just don't refer to me. <laughs> So, you know, as because fat being fat is the one oppression um, and a female, but really it's it's the fatness that I've experienced oppression around. Um, that is the thing that disconnected me from the eating disorders community. Um, but because I was white, I, you know, came out of sort of a corporate um, type of job and I was able to work my way into the community in a way that made thin people, frankly, comfortable. And I also am not super fat. So I'm, I'm not um, at a level of fat that um, we see, you know, oppressions really start to build and affect how people are treated. Um, so anyway, I just want to name that I, I actually have a lot of privilege. Um, and that has allowed me into the eating disorders community and allowed me to do the work that I want to do um, and open the doors for other people because that I feel is my job and that is um, what I'm working toward now. So I may have strayed very far from your question um, and not answered it, but... <laughs> it's all good. That's why I love conversations. They just go in all different directions. <laughs> well, I think, huh, now that you have strayed a little bit, I'm a little, I'm trying to think, Shavis, so for listeners, Shavis and I were talking before we started the recording, and there are so many different directions that I want to go in this podcast. So I guess what I'd like to talk about, and, and this does sort of go in line with how you did get to where you're at in the field, is how did you deal with your own internalized fat phobia? Because I know, by the way, listeners, please, I'm going to read some from, from her book. It is amazing. She co-authored it with Amy Pershing. But I know in your book, you wrote about having to get through that and that sometimes you still struggle with certain parts of self. Can you say a little to that? Yeah, absolutely. I feel that um, the thing that actually got me to recovery was dealing with my internalized weight bias. Um, you know, I, I did everything. And, you know, you can do CBT until you're blue in the face and, um, and still feel like, you know, something is missing and that there's, there's recovery out there that you just can't get to. Um, and it really was um, becoming a part of the sort of fat liberation community that allowed me to see that I had all these internal biases um, about myself and others that were really harming me. And, um, and they were still very present when I started Vita. Um, you know, founding the organization opened my world to a lot more people in the community. And so I was very fortunate to meet people like Amy Pershing and, um, and many others 
too many others to name, but um, they really taught me about a whole other level of what I needed to do. And so I began doing that. And it really requires um, work that comes, that, that really is trauma-based and trauma-informed um, because when you have internalized the messages about what a fat body means in society, um, you've traumatized yourself and you, you continue to get traumatized on a daily basis by the media, your family, doctors, everyone. Um, and we all have these biases. I still have them. Um, and I, I sometimes when I give um, talks, I, I tell the story about when I was a teenager and I surrounded myself by um, women who were generally thin and very beautiful and had, you know, all kinds of things going for them. Um, and I was very interested in being the token fat person. I did not want other fat people in the group because I thought that, um, you know, in that biased brain, I thought, well, there must be something special about me if these women like me and want me to be a part of their group. And they all tell me my face is pretty. And, you know, they all tell me like, if I could just lose weight, I, you know, if you could just lose weight, you would, you would be this or that. And so I, I thought that they would motivate me. Um, and I see, I think about that now and I just, oh, it's awful. Um, that's, that was my internalized weight biases. And um, as I said, I still have them. I, I do take an implicit weight bias test every, every um, I don't know, six months or a year um, because I want to see if I improve my scores. <laughs> And this, this is something that Harvard does. I was just going to say, uh, forgive me for interrupting. Where can people find this? What is the name of this weight bias test? Yeah, if you Google Harvard uh, implicit weight bias, you'll find it. And there, there are all kinds of tests that they do. Um, they do racial and, and other uh, oppressions. Um, but, you know, I on on that test, I still score as someone who has internalized um, weight biases. And, um, and I share that score with people to let them know that, you know, I do this work every day and I still have these biases, but it, it requires just that. It requires doing the work. It reminds me when you talk about this is similar this is a trauma work a, a trauma work this is trauma work forgive me everyone that this is trauma work that has to be done I want to read to you something that was written in the book that you and Amy wrote that and by the way listeners I have got like every single page toggled off in fact Shavisa and I were joking a book is so good you know a book is good when I highlighted paragraphs and underlined within those paragraphs because the book is so wonderful. And this is something that for whatever reason, Shabis, just made my heart sink. And you or Amy, I'm not sure who was writing which part, were talking about, and it says, basically the familiar message is, and I quote, 
your natural way of being is not okay. To be acceptable, you must be different from the way you are, end quote. As a colleague put it, new quote, our, and this is where my heart broke, our innocent childhood dance of acceptability is slammed in mid-pirouette. The desire to reach out and engage immediately contracts. We withdraw, shut down, hide. Our hearts break. That's early childhood trauma, Shavice. That's what some of the work that you're talking about, or maybe I should ask you, did I read that correctly? Yes, absolutely. And that that um, is the brilliance of, of Amy Perching. So I want to give her her credit. She's just amazing and has taught me so much. Um, yeah, that I mean, there's not much more to say about it, that that captures it perfectly. And I think that, um, you know, in the book, I, I talk about my own experience um, with early trauma around my body size. And I, you know, I grew up in a family that um, was in disarray. You know, my, my mother um, is a recovering alcoholic. She was practicing in my younger years. She also had an undiagnosed eating disorder. Um, you know, there, there were lots of issues. And, um, you know, I have a very close relationship with my mother now, and I don't blame her. And, you know, she was, she was doing the best she could coming out of the home with a lot of domestic violence. And, you know, so we see these intergenerational um, things that affect us, but those early childhood traumas of, of neglect and, um, you know, the constant um, worry about my weight, um, you know, my my weight became one of the central things in our family to worry about, even though there were much bigger problems that were were happening. And really, my weight was not a problem. Is it possible that that was the safest thing for your family? And when I say safest, I don't mean for you, but almost like you became the identified patient of the family because there were such bigger things. Everyone's like, well, let's just focus on this. This we can see, this consider, you know, when you compare to the rest of the world, this is an obvious. Do you think that's something that was happening? I think, I think for me, there were times when that was the situation. Um, my mom was the identified patient in the greater family system. And so there were, I mean, everyone was always trying to fix my mother. Um, my brother had, um, you know, this was the early 70s, and he had pretty severe ADHD. And, um, and no one knew at all what to do with that. Um, and so there was a lot of attention on him as well. But I think, yes, in terms of, you know, there are these big problems and we really don't know what to do with them. Um, let's just deal with the thing that seems easy. And that is that, you know, my weight could be changed. Otherwise, I was the sweet little quiet girl who, you know, everybody loved. But if we could just make her thin, then she'd be perfect. I also want to go back to something else you said a few minutes ago 
that, and, and I may have heard this incorrectly, people would say your face is beautiful if only you could lose weight. It takes my breath away. And unfortunately, that is not an uncommon thing that you hear. We do live in a fat phobic society. We do live in a society that is overly dominated by the diet industry, that beauty is only perceived in a certain way. Do you feel like that's shifting? I feel like it's shifting a little bit, Shavise, but I don't know. Maybe I'm naive to that. It is shifting in certain groups. And I mean, I, you know, I guess I look at it as there is some enlightenment happening. Um, but as with any big sort of movement that people are standing up and saying, this is not right, this harms me, there's a lot of pushback. And so the while on one hand, we're gaining ground, on the other hand, the pushback is real, and it is vicious. And so for me to stand up and say, I'm a fat woman, and I'm okay with that, and I can live like this and, and be okay, is just, it's so antithetical to what we're taught, taught. And for some people, it becomes a, you know, I, I then become a target. And, and, and that definitely is happening. What it makes me think of is I wonder if one of the reasons why this is such an uphill battle is this is not an oppression coming from or a bias coming from just one place. Like I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm thinking this is a big hill to climb because it's not only the diet industry, it's not only what we see in the media, but it's also being discussed inappropriately in doctor's offices. Like I know from, from experiences of hearing clients and from what you wrote in the book and just from all the work that I've done, sometimes the first thing a doctor will say is, well, you need to lose weight and then We'll see. What are your thoughts about that? Because I also want to say a doctor is supposed to be an authority figure. Please hear me. I, I'm not trying to insult the medical field in any way. I just know it's a really, really big problem. And I also know that as a result, a lot, a lot of people do not go to the doctors because they're afraid of getting weighed. They're afraid of the, that they're going to say, I have this symptom and out of nowhere, the doctor's going to say lose weight, which is typically no correlation. So what are your thoughts about that? You have a lot of thoughts about that. And let me just say that I've, you know, I've sat at the feet of, of many people who have done this work much, much longer than I have and learned from them. And so these are not original Shavis ideas or thoughts. And so I don't want to take credit for them. Um, they have integrated into my life and I understand them on, it feels like a cellular level now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the originator of, of some of these things. Um, and for, I, I do want to say that, um, you know, this is systemic. 
And there is a fabulous book out there by Sabrina Strings called Fearing a Black Body um, that really documents how fat phobia through history um, has um, been carried by Black women. Um, and it is it, the research that was done um, and the it just is an incredible book and everyone who is interested in in this issue should should read it. It's it's very important. You know, fat phobia um, in the medical profession is is documented well. It is second to families um, where people are harmed. Um, so you're you're first harmed um, in your family typically. Um, and then the second place where it shows up is in, in the medical profession. And, you know, the, the diet culture um, around us has really shifted and has now sort of hidden into the wellness culture um, so that, you know, even organizations like Weight Watchers are now just WW and they've rebranded themselves as wellness, you know, and I, I have a, a dear friend who, in part of my language, says that, um, you know, diet culture is a shape-shifting motherfucker because it, it shows up everywhere. And um, so it is deeply embedded in, in the wellness industry and in medicine. And it is, it is doing great harm there. Um, I had a doctor put me on a... Um, what was essentially speed, a diet pill when I was seven. Um, and, you know, that really helped me learn my eating disorder well. I mean, I learned so much from the medical profession about how to have an eating disorder. They really were my primary teacher. And, um, and the bias there does keep us from seeking help, you know, and sort of the joke is, if you break a bone and you go to a doctor, they're going to tell you, well, if you lose 20 pounds, you know, and, and that seems ridiculous, but the, the number of stories of people going and seeking help and then being told that the answer is to lose weight and later it shows up as cancer or arthritis or something, you know, um, it, it really firmly puts the blame on the, on the individual and does not look at any of the health disparities there, that are out there that are affecting fat people and they're getting care. We just don't get care as quickly as someone in a thin body. And so issues that are present around our health are not addressed until much, much later when we all know that you know prevention is the cure um, oftentimes. I read it was either in your book, and when I say your, I, I'm always referring to you and Amy, or it was a journal article. I can't remember which one about a woman who they kept putting on a diet, things like that. And it wasn't until years later that they found out that she had incurable cancer. Was that in your book? It was not in my book, but it's been, that story has been written many times by people. So it's, it's out there. It's, you know, there are several articles and I was giving a talk at, at the Renfrew conference in Philadelphia one year 
And a woman stood up in the audience and told that story about herself. And it was heartbreaking. I just, I could not believe it. Um, and so it puts an extra burden on us as fat people to have to always be trying to educate our physicians and also setting boundaries. Um, I'm fortunate now that I feel like I have a physician that I've trained well <laughs> and she is wonderful and would never weigh me. She sees me every three months to keep um, anything I have going on, you know, controlled and on top of. And so she's wonderful, but that is really, that is not the usual situation for most people. And also when we're talking about the quote unquote wellness world or whatever, dieting is one of the key things that goes back, goes into binge eating. It go or uh, forgive me, I don't know if that's correct, but I know it's one of the key things that goes into regaining weight loss and typically more than you started with. And then the person who's gained the weight back is considered the opposite of wellness. They're considered bad. It's their fault. They didn't do it correctly. Doctors keep saying what's wrong. I keep putting you on diets. And so you have talked about, I, I heard you say in, a, in another podcast, and I'd love for you to explain this, that often people with binge eating disorder are very much restricting. Um, and as we, as you know, we know, talk about atypical anorexia. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I feel that is my story. I mean, I started binging when I was five and, I, you know, I did not start binging because of a diet necessarily. It was, you know, my, my mother definitely was already sending messages about concern about my body, but I, she wasn't actively purposefully restricting me. Um, but I started binging very young and then started gaining weight in middle childhood, which by the way, is absolutely normal. Thank you for saying that. Yes. Yes. And it's when parents freak out and put their kids on diets, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Um, but in, in terms of, of binge eating disorder, yes, there is a, a binge restrict binge cycle. Um, and, you know, sometimes it starts with restrict, binge, restrict. Um, but whether it is a purposeful diet that is restriction or it is even the short term, um, you know, for instance, I would binge and then feel so terrible about myself. Um, my, my goal in life was to have bulimia, but I, I, for one reason or another, was not able to engage in those behaviors. Now I thank goddesses. Um, but, um, you know, I would, I would just not eat for as long as possible after that. And I would feel so good about myself then that, you know, look, I could not eat. Um, and it would go for some time and then, it would stop and I would just be, I'd be ravenous. I'd be so hungry and I'd binge because I was hungry. And then it would just keep going because I was feeling so terrible about myself. When we talk about atypical anorexia, um, I, I look at it as having atypical anorexia in the course of my binge eating disorder. And 
it doesn't, you know, having those restrictive periods after binge eating are not atypical anorexia. Um, you know, I, I really believe that it is a, a part of binge eating disorder. But there were times when I would, for the most part, stop eating for a very long amount of time. And I would eat very, very little. And, and this is, you know, six months or a year. It, you know, I, I, it, it, it was very different than, than just the course of the binge restrict cycle and binge eating disorder. And as I went along in my treatment, I realized that, you know, there were, there were times um, that I definitely could have been diagnosed. If I had seen a therapist at the right time, I would have been diagnosed with atypical anorexia. Um, and there's a lot of conversation about that now happening because mostly because the fat community has been standing up and saying, you know, you can be fat and have anorexia. And, um, and, and actually studies have shown that it is as dangerous, if not more dangerous than low weight anorexia, because, well, there, I, I've seen the studies, I won't go into all of that, but um, it's a, a very interesting thing to sort of parse out. Um, and, and so, yes, it's um, that pursuit of weight loss is, is for those of us with eating disorders, um, especially dangerous. And for all of us, it doesn't work long-term. You know, it's 90, more than 90% of people lose the weight, regain it at um, plus 20%. Not everybody regains the 20%, but um, I, I can't remember the stats, so I don't want to give uh, wrong information, but it, it is a large percentage. I think that people misunderstand or just don't aren't educated on the fact that regardless or in spite of or whatever the correct word is, so forgive me, a person's size, malnutrition is very dangerous. You do not have to be at a very low BMI, which even the BMI is a little controversial because of everything that, you know, and everything that the BMI says, but you malnutrition, dehydration, over-exercising, all of these things cross the board very dangerous, could cause heart, heart attack, you know, all like, and I don't know why I just said heart attack, because there's so many other things that it could cause, but it is just as, like you were saying, and if not, maybe more. And I wonder if the maybe more is because people are then getting praised for losing weight, as opposed to someone saying, when is the last time you ate? When is the last time you had something with a carbohydrate and protein and a fat. like So I have to wonder that that must go into it as well because people, instead of being supported for anorexia, are praised. Yes. And I was, I was so praised when I was in those, in that time when I was losing a lot of weight. And I was, you know... I was eating chicken broth. I mean, chicken broth and, you know, the occasional cracker and, um, you know, 
just the, I can't even remember what I ate anymore. It it just was so little, um, and I was losing massive amounts of weight, and I was getting so much praise from my family, from my friends, and it was like finally we have thin chemis, you know. Um, and that happened on you know several different time periods, and um, and so yeah, that that praise when you think about it behaviorally of course you're going to respond to it and want to do more until you can't, you know, until it becomes um, for, I know some people do slip into a, a place where they never go back. Um, but for me, it would go so long. And then um, my depression would take over and I would start to binge eat again. And so I'm very grateful for that. It saved me. I'm, I'm so grateful that, that I'm a binger. <laughs> that I was during my eating disorder because it literally saved me in so many ways. I also am curious about how you started the journey of turning it around. And, um, and there's a reason for this, but did you go to treatment? And, and again, there's a reason behind this question. Yeah. Um, it, it's a long journey. So just briefly, um, you know, I, the, the first eating disorder therapists that I saw all sent me to um, lose weight in weight management programs. And so, you know, that was always the focus. When I finally found somebody um, quite by accident who said, you know, I think this really is an eating disorder and, you know, it's called binge eating disorder and we don't know a lot about it at this point. Um, but, you know, I think what I'm, what I'm understanding is that we need to stop dieting, um, which of course then took years to convince me that that was, was a good idea. Um, so, uh, you know, treatment for me was many, many, many years of just really teaching me how to do my eating disorder better. Um, and then, you know, there were, there was no, there was no, higher level of care for me to go to. I mean, it just, it, there weren't as many in those days. And also you just, you were fat. Like, why would you go to eating disorder treatment? You know, so I did outpatient for many, many, many years. And there were definitely times when I needed a higher level of, of care. Um, but that thankfully I survived it. And, and here I am. So that leads me to my next thought. And first, what I'm going to do is just do another quote from the book, because this number just is staggering, and then talk about treatment for binge eating disorder. So in the book, it is written that three to five million people struggle with binge eating disorder, which is three times more common than anorexia and bulimia combined, more common than breast cancer, HIV, and schizophrenia. Shavis, I was a clinical director at a residential program for many, many years. I can name on two hands the clients that had binge eating disorder that came to treatment. And there's a few things that get in the way that are really critical. One, insurance. Thank God it's finally in the DSM-5. But even if I had a client that made it to treatment, after seven days of them being in a 24-hour care facility on observations, because they had not engaged in behaviors, they were discharged. 
that's discouraging. The other, and forgive me if this is a provocative thing to say, I would sit there and people would cry and say, I can't eat the food. My biggest fear is gaining weight. I can't do it. I don't want to be fat. And then somebody else in the room would say, you're basically saying I'm something to be afraid of. I am a person who is in a larger body. And you're saying you're afraid to become me. What are some recommendations? I know that because I've been in the field for so long that I was able to navigate through, by the way, those really hard conversations, especially at group level. What do you say to, to people if they're thinking about treatment, but they're afraid? Because Shavis, that is real. You can't say, oh, no, 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 go. You're going to be fine. Nope. There are very few places in the country that are safe for people of size um, with binge eating disorder or atypical anorexia or bulimia or any eating disorder. Um, and so whenever people ask me for recommendations, it, it, I really, it's very, very difficult. I have been in those rooms and groups where people have identified me as being the most terrifying thing um, in in the world to them and and usually it was me and everyone else was very thin um so so in that group i was the you know the the fear factor um and for that reason i do i mean i have a lot of thoughts about how groups are done just in general but you know that would be a whole separate <laughs> podcast well, then you're going to have to come back on, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, but I do think that there is, you know, we building resilience to the world around you is important. And a group can be very helpful in that. And so having groups of, you know, all fat folks um, can be very helpful. I'm not saying that that needs to be forever, but to, to help people, you know, um, deal with their own internalized um um, weight bias, and then also gain the resilience through that group of others and, and learn together um, can be really helpful. Um, you know, treatment centers have to do a better job as well. I mean, I hold them accountable. If you aren't offering a trauma-based intervention for your fat folks, then you're not doing your job um because we've all been traumatized um just living in in our bodies is traumatic on a daily basis um so that's the first thing the second thing is accommodations you know i'm fortunate that i can fit into most public things um but a lot of people can't and if you're not accommodating that, then you are harming them. And so they, they can't, you know, I went to one super well-known treatment center in California at one point to visit. And I walked in and I was just like, oh my God, it was beautiful, but everything was small. Everything about it was small and felt small. It, it definitely was not made for me. 
And if I had gone there, and by the way, I during the time Vita was around, I had calls from that treatment center from fat folks who were there getting treatment, begging to help them find a different treatment center. And there was really nothing to offer them, you know? So the field is not set up for us at all. Um, and it's it hasn't done its work to um, really take on the insurance industry with we activists to um, to make changes, you know, because I, I'm sure you had the experience of trying to get your higher weight client extended past that week. And they've said, you know, well, they've not lost weight in your program and they need to go to Weight Watchers, not eating disorders treatment. Um, you know, I, I have heard many stories from people doing doc-to-doc reviews with insurance companies where the doctors, um, you know, one in particular always stands out to me, but it, the, the doctor said to the treatment center staff, you know, we can get behind the skinny ones, but we're not going to pay for the fat ones. Like said that. And so, you know, that there's, there's nobody holding them accountable. By the way, listeners, you can't see this, but my mouth just dropped. I I can't believe. I mean, actually, I'm sorry. I can believe. I can believe. That's that's heartbreaking. Where does the field go from here? Um, I think that there is a big reckoning that is already happening, but needs to go further. Um, it is one of the most fat phobic you know, group of people I've ever worked around, um, you know, eating disorder clinicians and owners of treatment centers and, um, and the people who are struggling within it. We are all so fat phobic, even more so than the general public. And we have to deal with that um, because we're, we are causing harm. And um, until we can do that, I don't, I don't know how people get better. I mean, we have such dismal rates of, of recovery as it is. I mean, it, I, I don't want to say that there's no hope because there is, um, but we need better recovery rates. And I think a big part of what is missing is how that internalized weight bias, how that lives in our brains and what it does to change our brains and the trauma that that is caused that changes our brains. And that's for thin people too. And for people with anorexia who are underweight, it's not just for fat folks. It's all of us. So, you know, I'm all, all for the, neuro, you know, looking at how the, uh, at the neuroscience and, um, and, you know, looking at the, the brain biology of these disorders and the genetics, um, but you can't separate that from the behaviors. And I, I, they're all intertwined. We're changing brains in a detrimental way um, by being so fat phobic. Um, so the field needs to do, do its own internalized weight bias work. Um, and that's, you know, in 2011, um, BETA began the uh, Weight Stigma Awareness Week which Nita has taken on, and that's the last week of September. Um, so we'll continue to do a lot of work there. 
Um, there are some pretty big announcements coming up from us that I can't talk about now, but policy-wise that we are working and planning on that um, I think are going to, I think are going to push that reckoning to another level and and force people to look at it a bit more. And um, and also, um, you know, I I wish I could change our whole healthcare system, obviously. <laughs> um, so doing this work policy-wise can be really frustrating because I can't change the entire system to accommodate eating disorders. And so we have to work piecemeal within the system. Um, but I'm hoping and praying for that day to come where we see a different system and we can we can actually uh, get more people covered and and hold insurance companies accountable and and get get treatment get access to care for everybody because it it is real it's sad how many people cannot access any kind of care right now it is unbelievable and when you said doc to doc so for listeners i'm not sure if everyone knows what that is that's when the provider deals with the doctors at the insurance company. And we basically have to plead the case of why the provider wants to continue to keep the client there for treatment. And I know that I've experienced with clients with BED, and by the way, in all different body types, that I would they would go doc to doc before they could even get authorization sometimes. I would, we would try to do an admissions and the admissions department would call back and say, Karen, they're denying, they're saying it has to go doc to doc. And I'm thinking they haven't even gotten here yet. That's how hard it is to get treated for binge eating disorder. And what you were also talking about, which then means there are so many other things that do not get treated because I know you keep talking about trauma and binge eating disorder has the highest correlation of complex trauma. And so what's happening is people are being traumatized on top of their original trauma. They are being shamed on top of their original shame, where even the insurance company does not see their worth, does not see their importance, and it just becomes a really vicious cycle. It does. And on top of that, the eating disorders community sees binge eating disorder as not, it, it just isn't, it's not anorexia. And what they're missing is that many of us do go in and out of anorexia. And there's, <laughs> there are many of us who consider life not worth living because of the pain, just like those with anorexia and bulimia. And, um, you know, the... I, we don't have definitive numbers because it's never been looked at, but I can tell you working in this community, we all know it's happening and see it happening. And um, it's a painful life to live when you have an eating disorder 
and you're the body size pariah in the community that you belong to. So, um, you know, I, in my job, I fight for everyone, for everyone with an eating disorder. Um, but it would be really helpful if the community um, began to do its work in recognizing that the danger of, of eating disorders are across the spectrum and that people with binge eating disorder deserve more than self-help. It's interesting that you say that because I was just going to ask you next if there is a high suicide rate with binge eating disorder, because there are high suicide rates with eating disorders, period. But do we know what what it is strictly for binge eating disorder? Or is that the number? Is that when you were saying you don't have the numbers? Yeah, I don't have I don't have the numbers. I don't. Um... If there's a study out there and somebody knows of it, please let me know. <laughs> Here it is. Shavisa's is asking for some help. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know of it. And that, you know, we we don't, we don't, we can't tell the difference. We know that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of all the eating disorders. Um, there's some question around that because of the way that the studies have been conducted. Um, but we we don't know how, what percentage of those are suicide versus, you know, heart failure and that sort of thing. And by the way, I had heart failure at age 35 because of my eating disorders. So, so weight cycling and starving yourself, even when you also are binging, is, is just as dangerous as starving yourself all the time, you know, and, and so it's, you know, there's so much that has not been looked at. And so we just live in this world of, of, you know, preconceived conceptions that are, that we can't, we know they're wrong, but we can't, we can't prove it because the work hasn't been done. Do you think it is starting, the work is starting to be done though, given the fact that, and, and by the way, this does not mean that it's there, but do you feel like it's going in the right direction now that it has been put in the DSM-5, now that there are organizations like Binge Eating Disorder that's merged with BETA, that's merged with NIDA, there are many more platforms for people to talk. Do you feel it's moving in the right direction or have we not even scratched the surface? I don't think we've scratched the surface. And to be frank, and I think it's because of the shame of individuals um, with binge eating disorder and other high weight eating disorders and the shame of their families around the person's um, body. They're the, the primary donors in the field are focused on anorexia. You know, the, 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 the donors who have the money to fund the organizations that are doing the work are all concerned with anorexia and, and they direct their funds in that way. Um, and so that becomes the, the primary focus. And again, I, I please don't hear this as I'm taking away from that. Not at all. I want to add to it. It is critical 
I mean, anorexia is so poorly understood. So I don't want anyone to have that impression. This isn't an either or at all. Um, but, you know, we, our organizations and the work that we do survive on the generosity of, of, fundra- of funders. And, um, and, th- and when it comes to research as well, you know, the government is, is not generous with their funds at the moment. We actually are, are working on that um, in our policy but um, you know, there, there's a lot to be said. The, the the primary concern of funders is is anorexia, and so it's it's difficult. It doesn't at all sound like you're trying to do an exclusion. It sounds like you're trying to do an inclusion. I hope that's the way it comes across because I have been criticized for that, and I, I just want to make it very clear that's you know. I've had anorexia. <laughs> my my mother has had anorexia. I have loved ones with the, it, it. It is very very top of mind for me. And and it also for me makes me think that as a group that has felt excluded, you do have to speak a lot about your own community. And so it probably sounds like people are thinking, well, what about anorexia? What about bulimia? You, and just like you said, you're not, it's not trying to invalidate or minimize, but it's almost like the, the, the sirens have to go louder because you're climbing so much farther out of the hole. Does that make sense? I, yeah. It does, absolutely. We have to be louder. And that means we take a lot more criticism. Shavis, I got to tell you, and, and you know, I say this with every guest, I could go on for hours. I, I love these conversations. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just thoroughly enjoying the, the conversation with you, but we are going to have to start closing up the show. Before I ask the final question, which has nothing to do with eating disorders, is there anything you would like to add, anything that I didn't ask you or anything that you feel listeners need to know? I, um, no, nothing that's sort of short and concise. And I think just, just do your work, do your internal weight bias work. Yeah, great. All right, Shavis, this is going to be the hardest question you get all year. (laughs) If somebody were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? I think, and this is, this is not original um, to some extent, but um, you know, there is a saying that if you're, if you're not taking shit, you're not doing shit. And so I think that I would, I would just want to say that, you know, she took a lot of shit. (laughs) I love it. And, and again, listeners don't get to see this, but you just said it with like a little deadpan face. You're just like, yeah, took a lot of shit. So (laughs) Shavise, fantastic. I cannot thank you enough for being a guest on this podcast. It it really means a lot to me. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. Thank you, Shavis, for me as well. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening again to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking to all of you again next week. Okay, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. 
That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.